Well, hello and welcome to today's show. You know, students ask the best questions. And sadly though, sometimes if these questions are not answered or are not responded to, they can turn into doubts and end up causing students to question the faith and possibly even walk away from the faith. So my one of my goals here at Think Well is to get you to think well, to engage questions well and engage the culture with a biblical worldview. And so today we're gonna to be tackling some of the most difficult questions that students ask. My guest, Alex McFarland, is gonna be joining me to help answer these difficult questions that students ask and whether you are the student Student coming to watch this. You're the parent trying to figure out how to answer your students' questions, or maybe you're an adult who has the same questions. These are questions that definitely are not only for high school students. And so Alex McFarland is a Christian apologist, author, evangelist, a cultural and religion analysis. Uh, he's an advocate for biblical truth. He's preached in many different places all around the world. He also has his own radio show, the co-host of Exploring the Word on the American Family Radio Network, also has the Alex McFarland Show on YouTube, and uh, and has written this book that we're going to be pulling some of the questions from, 21 of the toughest questions kids will ask about Christianity and how to answer them confidently. So Alex, thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation with us. Oh, thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate the chance to be with you. And I want to commend you for all that you're doing. You're, you're teaching, you're broadcasting, you're influencing countless lives. So I'm, I'm honored to be with you, Ryan. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. And so um, as we kind of jump in, I, I want to kind of get to these questions because I think they are so important in helping people think well. And is, is that, you know, I'm kind of curious, though, is, is this book is is not brand new. Uh, it's been out a little while. Um, I yeah. think it was published back in 2013. I'm just kind of curious of like in your time doing apologetics and evangelism and, and work with students, because you've worked a lot with students. How have you seen questions changing over the years? How are they different now than they were before? Uh, Ryan, that's a great question, because there have been changes, actually. And I was a youth pastor full time for like 11 years. And, and I got to say, like 25 years ago, the questions, at least in my experience, were more evidential. And students were asking questions like, you know, how do we really know that the Bible is trustworthy? And right. how do we really know Jesus rose from the dead? And I mean, those are important questions. And I think the evidence is compelling. But uh, more lately... Uh, and I was on the road this weekend and I was in front of people from, I was at a conference there were people from about 25 states, a lot of teenagers and college students. And the questions now to me, Ryan, seem more um, emotional than evidential. Yeah. And there, there are questions about structures of power and uh, questions about, you know, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Why do people groups get exploited? And so, I mean, the biblical worldview is true. Okay. And when we say true, I mean that which corresponds to reality. God exists. The Bible is trustworthy. Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead. But while the message of the gospel is still the same, a personal relationship with Jesus who died for our sins, the, the objections and the obstacles people have, at least in the Western world, I think are less less evidential and more questions about, uh, is God fair? Is God just? Why is life sometimes unfair? And then, you know, I've, let me just say this, when we come along and we're like leaders or there's questions about the institutional church, there are questions about power and motive. You see what I mean? And here I am. Oh my goodness. I'm a Caucasian male conservative. 
And I was just recently at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, secular campus. A lot of great students there. Uh, but the ones that maybe don't have a Christian background or, or, you know, really they're not so sure about this Christianity thing. They want to know, I mean, like, who is this white male telling us about a God who calls himself father? So there's just a lot of questions about power and motive. Interesting. So how does that shape then our ability to respond to it? You know, if we learn the evidence and we respond confidently with what we know is true, uh, how do our answers maybe need to change as well? Well, um, psychologists tell us that in a relationship, a true relationship is reciprocal. There's give and there's take. You know, there's listening and there's talking. But for there to be a true relationship, there has to be three attributes, trust, honesty, and respect. And so, look, I, I believe in sharing the gospel. And the Bible tells Christians to proclaim the message, the good news, that Jesus, the Son of God, died and rose again for our sins. And by faith in Jesus, we have a relationship with the Lord. And I believe that. But it, it does seem like to me, at least in our experience and the the people that we interface with and train, that the, the pre-conversion gestation period is longer than ever. And you've got to build a relationship and there's got to be trust. And, uh, it, you know, it just takes time. Now, I, I'll say this in dealing with unsafe people. It's very rewarding. In fact, just two days ago, Ryan, I found out um, uh, an atheist that we've been interacting with for two years and two months, 20, 26 months. Wow. This, this atheist just came to Christ. Wow. And, um, you know, so people can be reached, but uh, the true gospel, I mean, the message is true. Christ is risen. Absolutely. But it takes time for uh, people that are very, very unchurched. They've never had any experience with God or church. They've got to really build trust before they open up their heart to that message. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, the relationship really is so key. And 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 one thing, you know, just to in, encourage people with, right, is this not just kind of the soundbite world that we live in? It's not just kind of stepping in, saying something and stepping out, but how do we walk alongside people in this journey? Because, you know, it's it's sad to say, but I think, and maybe I'm curious if you kind of had similar experiences, but it's like sometimes Christians in evangelism, it's like, if I talk to someone one, two, three times, and they're not ready to convert, then it's like, well, I give up, you know, there's no hope here. And it's like, would you convert out of Christianity after two conversations with someone of a different faith? Like if you wouldn't do that, like, why do you expect them to do that as well? Exactly. Now I want to say something that is going to sound maybe counterintuitive for like an evangelist. Um, we've got to invest in people with no expectation of return. Hmm. All right. First Peter three fifteen says, be ready to give an answer. And that's like one of the classic apologetics texts. Right. But I love Ryan. I love first Peter two fifteen. says, this is the will of God that by doing well, you will put to silence the arguments of foolish men. In other words, here's the deal. We can do apologetics, but we ourselves are supposed to be an apologetic. We're supposed to be authentic and love people. And yeah, we've got the content. We've got the message. You know, Second um, Peter 1, no, I'm sorry, First Peter, let me think. No, Second Peter 1, 16 through 20. It is Second Peter. It says, we have not followed cleverly devised fables when we made none under the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is real. 
It's absolutely real. But here's the deal. We've got to walk alongside people and they need to know that we care about them, whether they ever become a believer or not. Now, do we want people to become a believer? Of course we do. But we've got to understand. I honestly believe this, Ryan. People are an end in themselves. They're made in the image of God. The Lord does love them. And we've got to build these relationships, do life together, whether somebody ever accepts Christ or not. I, and, and believe me, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, give up. Or, no, I'm not. Right. But um, we, we want people to open up to the Lord. But people are to be loved and valued and cherished and invested in whether they ever get saved or not. That seems a little bit kind of like the um, the the strategy, I guess, so to speak, or the the conversation that Greg Kokel often has, where like his end goal is not necessarily that they come to faith. Like that's what you want, and that's what hopefully you know happens. But if that is the goal of every conversation you have, you're often going to walk away disappointed, or you're going to push things way too hard, and and probably cause some issues and, you know, kind of relates it to like, you know, the goal of getting up to, to bat it in a baseball game is like, yeah, it'd be nice to hit a home run. But if you go up there swinging for the fences, you're probably going to strike out more than you're going to help. Uh, but instead of how do I just help the team? How do I get on base? How do I move a runner over? How do I do something small? How do I put a stone in someone's shoe and get them to think, recognizing we play a bigger part of this picture? And it kind of seems like you're saying something similar to that is like, hey, not that, that we don't want this. We absolutely do. But what is a smaller goal that can help build towards that? Yeah. I mean, we, we have an authentic message, but we are supposed to be authentic messengers as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we jump into some of these categories, right? So so some of the categories you have in this book are, are questions about God, right? This is a big category. And and obviously there's questions about, you know, how do we know that God exists and kind of that evidential thing. But I think as you're you're saying, the questions have shifted and it's a little bit different. So, so rather than maybe like the evidence for God's existence, uh, how would you go about helping someone know that God is actually a God of love? Because I think that's a, our culture kind of is painting God in a very different place, uh, a very different picture. Uh, how would you go about helping someone know that God actually is a God of love and he loves us yeah great question because you know the, these are like three big questions does god exist and then what kind of god exists right. and then how may i know this god who exists um and we're talking about the essential the nature of god sometimes we might use the word the the attributes of god or the character of god you know who is god and and first of all you know like um not Last night, my wife and I were helping out with Vacation Bible School at our church here in Central North Carolina, where we live. And uh, my wife and I have the fourth graders, and, which awesome age group. And one of the children last night asked the question, you know, because we're talking about the Lord and what is God like. And this fourth grader said, well, how do we know? How do we know? And I said, well, because God has shown himself to us. Um, scholars use the big word revelation. God has revealed himself to us. And God has revealed that he is a lot of things. He is love. He is righteous. And that means he always does the, the appropriate thing and the good thing and the, the uh, exact correct thing. Um, but God in his very core, his very nature, he is holy and eternal. Now, uh, Ryan, let me sort of drill down deeply a little bit because the Bible tells us that sin Sin separates us from God, but sin also is that which brings death. Romans 6.23 says that the, the net result of sin is death. And ultimately, philosophers would use the word like non-being. Sin 
is that which tends toward non-being. Now, we know God is eternal. God is forever. There's, there's never been a time when God didn't exist. And part of the reason that God is eternal is because within God is nothing but goodness. I mean, every, every superlative you can muster, love, uh, righteousness, holiness, goodness. Uh, so we, we know that God must be good because if he weren't, if somehow there were evil within God, he wouldn't be eternal. He would be sinful and um, ultimately dead like us. Uh, so we know God must be good because an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing being by their very nature, within their very nature, must be good. Uh, we say righteous. We say holy. Let's just simplify and say God is good. That's part of why he is eternal. Um, yeah. So, you know, part of me, I'm thinking is like, <laughs> this is not a question a student would ask, um, but, you know, you, you kind of are, are drawing into this. And I've been hearing more and more lately of, of atheists making this argument of an evil God hypothesis uh, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, and it seems like you're saying, so, so what would be, you're kind of saying that, but why can't an evil God, you, you said because of sin, but why can't an evil God or why can't there be an eternal evil God? Well, this is a great question, and, and I realize we're going to swim some deep waters here, but um, <laughs> we need to go back to Augustine, because every now and then, atheists, and um, by the way, the book you mentioned, The 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity, I, I like sat down with 330 families. I'm on the road. I travel a lot. Uh, you know, before COVID, man, I was traveling. I For 20 years, I was doing like 125, 150 cities a year. So I'm in front of a lot of families, and so we interviewed, we kept fairly copious notes of families with uh, children like 5 to 12 or 13. So there's kind of a wide spectrum of like um, late, late toddlerhood, childhood, pre-adolescence. And the, the types of questions in that book actually kind of um, follow the arc of adolescent development. But atheists would often ask me, they would say... Um, if God created everything and evil is a thing, then God must have created evil. And atheists have asked me the question, and kids have asked me this question. So what if God was good, but like now, maybe like within the last couple of decades, God, um, evil has become his favorite thing now because the world is so messed up. The world is violent. You know, Russia invades Ukraine. There's bad stuff. Maybe God likes evil now. And maybe God was good, but he is, his tastes have shifted. And um, let, let's talk about why that is, is as, as the philosophers would say, that does not obtain. Okay. God didn't make evil. Now, I suppose we could say by giving humans free will, we call that volition, the ability to make a choice. Uh, we can make decisions, we choose, and that's called moral volition. Now, God didn't create evil. But you could, I suppose, say God created the possibility of evil. But God also created the possibility for good, because the same humans that can choose to do bad can choose to do good. The same humans that can act with treachery and malice, well, those same humans can act with valor and heroism. So Augustine said this, and by the way, Augustine was a really smart dude who lived <laughs> 354 to 430. I happen to think Augustine was one of the smartest mortals that ever lived. But he said this, 
he said that evil is not a thing, but evil is a corruption or, or a privation of a thing. Now, God looked over his creation, said, it is good, it is good. The, the solar system, the planets, the plants, the animals, and yes, human beings, God looked over all the creation and said, it is good. Now, Ryan, we look around today and we say, well, not everything is good. Some stuff is bad, and that's true. And in fact, the very atheists that will say, look, there's rape, there's murder, there's stealing, there's, you know, all this bad stuff, therefore there must not be a God. Well, I mean, the only way that we can meaningfully praise that which is good and condemn that which is bad is if there's an ultimate standard from which we measure. Um, let, me, let me give an illustration. I'll throw it back to you. But so, so let's say that, um, you know, from my computer screen to me is, I don't know, 24 inches. From the microphone to me is like six or eight inches, right? So um, relative to the computer screen, the microphone is closer to the computer than I am. I am farther away from the computer than the microphone. But the only way I can really measure and get a definitive read on this is if the, the computer is this immovable thing that I measure from. And here's my point. We look at like a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa, and we say their life was good. We look at Hitler or Osama bin Laden, terrorist. We say their life was bad. What we are really saying, Ryan, when we make a value judgment like that, we're saying that the life of Mother Teresa more closely conforms to an ultimate standard of good than the life of Adolf Hitler. And if we say there's no such thing as God, well, we, we've removed the perfect um, immovable standard from which we measure. So I tell atheists that, look, if, so there's no such thing as God. Okay. Well, then you can't really say anything is good or bad. You could, at, at best, say stuff happened, but you couldn't really meaningfully evaluate it. So God can't be evil because, first of all, if God were evil, uh, he wouldn't be eternal. But again, evil is not a thing in itself. Right. Evil is a corruption or a, or a degradation or a privation of something that was otherwise good. Yeah. I like the computer analogy uh, illustration. I often with, uh, when I'm talking with my students, I use either, uh, I tell them, uh, let's say we're playing sports. One team scores 95 points. One team scores 85 points. Who wins? They will often say 95. And I go, always? And so there's always the person who go, well, if it's golf, 85 wins. And so it's like, yeah, it depends on what sport is. It depends on what the rules of the game are. You know, same thing is, you know, if I'm playing a sport, do I throw the ball against the ground? Do I throw it like this? Do I kick the ball? What am I supposed to do with it? And it's like, well, depends on what the sport is. Uh, and so uh, absolutely. Um, just got to air in my That's stream. So hopefully, hopefully we're still up. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they realize if there are no rules to the game, then you can't say that one action is a better action than another. And so the, the same question is true of life. What are the rules to the game of life? in order to say that one action is a better action than another. Now, one of the conversations I'm having uh, on Twitter right now is, is this argument talking about is God a God of love is this question of um, how do we believe in a God of love if he is going to punish people in hell eternally? If he is going to pour out his wrath and put people in torment, why do we believe that that is a God of love? Well, and do you know that is, I, I will grant you, 
that that I think is is the the thorniest, most difficult apologetics or theological question. You know, like C.S. Lewis, by the way, one of the most brilliant mortals that ever lived, C.S. Lewis, lived 1898 to 1963, super intelligent guy. And Lewis said, um, there is no doctrine I would more willingly remove from the Christian canon than the doctrine of hell, if it were in my power to do so. Hmm. But it is not. And Lewis said um, that hell has the support of scripture, the support of church history, and most importantly, said Lewis, the support of the words of Christ. So here's the deal. God offers salvation, but he doesn't force it. Um, and actually, believe it or not, and, and for just a moment, let, let's try not to think about the, 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 the fires of hell or the temperature. Let's just say uh, in eternity, there's, there's eternity with God or eternity apart from God. And, and I honestly do, Ryan, having traveled a lot, like to developing nations and third world countries, and I've been in places where people had no, no real witness of the gospel in terms of scripture, but they do have the witness of creation and conscience. Um, Psalm 19, as well as reams of historical data, talk about the fact that the human race is aware of a creator. Creation had to have a creator. Then the moral law within our heart tells us that, you know, I, I've done wrong. I feel bad about it. I'm accountable to something. So people honestly really do know about God. Now, eternity, there, there's eternity with God or eternity apart from God. And, and I agree with Blaise Pascal, Ryan. Uh, Pascal was reading Jeremiah 29, uh, 13. And it says, and this was to ancient Israel, but I really think the principle applies to the human race. Pascal observed from Jeremiah 29, 13, you will search and you will seek and you will find when you search with all your heart. So Pascal made a syllogism. And a syllogism, by the way, is like point A, point B, therefore C. Okay, point A, the Bible promises all who seek will find God. But point B, not all find God. And Point C is obviously, therefore, not all sought God. But let me give how Blaise Pascal clarified it. Point A, Bible promises that all who seek God will find him, but not all find God. Therefore, despite appearances, not all sought God. So whenever somebody asks me and says, you know, well, how do you love a God that um, sends people to hell? Uh, well, I really think the more accurate way to say it is like this. God doesn't force anybody into heaven who doesn't want to be there. You see, I mean, forcing everybody into heaven, even against their will, because I mean, I've had many atheists say to me, um, like Christopher Hitchens, who I knew pretty well, actually, we, we emailed a lot. Hitchens, um, I, I said, if Christianity were true, would you want to believe it? And he thought, he said, no. I said, really? If, Chris, if, if that was the way reality really was. Now, ultimately, what happened in the soul of Hitchens, only God knows. I don't know. But I mean, there, there was a time when Hitchens told me. He said, if there is a heaven, I don't want to go. I said, well, God is not going to make you go. So um, for the people who have a problem with hell, let's remember that God made us human. 
And as human beings, we have this everlasting spirit that we are. We will laugh. You know, it's almost like this. Let me say this. Um, we'll put it in geometrical terms. Think of a line, a ray, and a segment. Now, a line is like God goes everlastingly in both directions. A segment is like an animal. There's a start. There's a stop. But we humans are like a ray. There's a starting point, but then it goes on everlastingly. Um, life begins at conception, and the, the spirit does live forever. And so it really behooves us, and people in all cultures do think about this. Um, God, whoever you are, have mercy on me. Uh, and, and so, Ryan, I think people get hung up, and they'll say, well, you know, God must be mean. He sends people to hell. No, he offers himself, but for those that, that you know, abjectly do not want God in their life and they don't want to be in the presence of God, he doesn't force them to be in his presence. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it's it's so important to help us recognize, you know, what 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 all people have been revealed and what has been given to all people and and where we are and, and how God is uh, calling and, and, and our responsibility and everything and how that works together is a little bit more complicated than just something very simply stated. Uh, now a question came in for you uh, here in the live chat. Um, and it's definitely one I can see a lot of uh, students and, and kids asking is why does God need worship? Why, why do I need to go to church? Uh, that's a question I wanna ask later, but why do we have to worship God? Oh, great question. Um, and, uh, Hey, you know, um, I, thanks again for having me on and letting me, you know, talk about these things with you because, uh, you know, I, I think theology is important and what we're talking about, which is not necessarily Bible verses only, but Christian thought, trying to think precisely about God. I think this is very healthy and very important. So why worship? Cause I've had students say, you know, okay, God must be on some big cosmic ego trip. You know, God's up in heaven saying to the human race, worship me, you know. All right. Scholars use a word about God, and it's it's the word immutable. Mutability means changeability. And they say, you know, God, whoever God is, God doesn't change. God is immutable. Well, if everybody in the world, let, let's let's think about the outcomes of worship. Let's say everybody in the whole wide world, seven billion humans plus, decided to love God and worship God. Would that make God bigger, better, stronger? Would that somehow aggrandize or, or change God? And the answer is no. On the flip side, conversely, if everybody rejected God, would that diminish God? No. So the call for worship it's not going to change God. It's not going to help God out if we do or don't worship him. So there must have been some other motive in the heart of God. I would submit this, Ryan, that even in calling us to worship him, that's an act of love on God's part. Now, let's define love for a minute. Love is to seek the highest good of another. Now, we, we tend to think of love in terms of emotion, my my girlfriend makes me feel a certain way. Oh, I love her. But in, in God's perspective, love is to desire, to work toward, to seek the, the thing that is best, most beneficial, the highest good, the summum bonum. And so the most alive, 
will ever be is the closer we are to God. Believe it or not, in calling us to worship and to know him, to commune with him, to grow in him, and to become more Christ-like, that's actually an act of love because we find ourselves, I mean, the real me, the, the best Alex that Alex could be, the best Ryan that Ryan could ever be, the most Ryan that Ryan will ever be, we find that in the one who is the source of life and the foundation of life. So I would submit that, that worshiping God is the wisest thing we could ever do. And in calling us to know and worship him, that was actually a, an act of love on the part of God. Yeah. So it's not that he needs it, uh, that there's no. something lacking, but it is for our benefit that we are called to be in that position and that relationship with him. Um, one last thing I want to ask you about God before we move on kind of to a different topic is is this idea when you hear a lot, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? But, but more so I want to ask it in the sense of rather than God allowing evil is like, it seems like God is not very fair uh, that often, you know, I can love God and serve him and, you know, people get sick and still die and bad things happen. And there's still, you know, Christians who love God and are in poverty. And then there's a bunch of evil, wicked, you know, people just living for themselves in more of a self-centered way that are prospering, that are rich, that seem to have it all together and have the good life. And so, you know, why does it seem like God is unfair and why do I need to be living this life that really does seem like it gets the, the, the short end of the stick maybe more often than not? Well, uh, and do you know the desire for justice, I, I think, is part of the, the imago Deo that we're made in God's image. Um, we desire things to be made right, and so does God. Uh, and we've got to remember what this world is and isn't. And, and by the way, Ryan, sometimes when I like share my position on this, uh, people will say, well, you know, I didn't ask for this assignment. I didn't, you know, mom and dad uh, split up, or my loved one got a terminal illness or whatever. You know, I didn't ask for this assignment. Um, I know none of us do, but here, here's what's going on in the world. Okay. This world is not heaven. And sometimes we fault this world for not being something that we were never promised. It was, we were never promised that this world would be heaven. Now what this world is actually is like a workshop for the building of saints, you know, just like a master sculptor chips away and out of a hunk of of nondescript rock or some other medium god you know the sculptor brings it out a masterpiece this world is a world whereby we and this this is so amazing without compromising his nature without uh, overriding our free will without overriding anybody else uh, anybody else's free will uh, what god is doing is bringing forth a redeemed body of, of people that by choice and also by God's overtures and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit uh, and without any of the, the rules being broken or bent or the laws of nature or spiritual truth being, being encroached upon, God brings forth uh, a multitude of people that have a relationship with him and uh, not only are taken to heaven one day, but even rewarded. Isn't that amazing? We can know Christ and be redeemed, but we can even be rewarded in heaven for the stuff we did post 
salvation. Now, here's the deal. People say, um, all right, X happened. Okay, some bad thing happened, right? Well, this is either an opportunity to turn away from God or draw into God. And as I draw into God, I trust God, which is not easy. That's why it's walking by faith. But I learned things about faithfulness of God. I learned things about the promises of God. I learned I'm humbled. Uh, see, it's a beautiful thing. Evil, if we process it from the right vantage point, um, it, it, it turns from tragedy to a glorious growth moment. Um, and so we, we say, well, look, I didn't ask to live forever. I didn't ask to have to lay my pain on the altar before my Savior. I didn't ask to have to love somebody that's unlovely. Yeah, I know, but um, we're not the ringmaster of this circus. God is. So uh, I honestly think, Ryan, the, the only way to meaningfully process all the data that we have before us is through the lens of the Savior and my relationship and my journey with him. Yeah, I think that's so good. You know, it's just we often are so short-sighted uh, and focusing on only what happens in this short little moment, not taking eternity into consideration when we make some of these claims. Now, uh, kind of switching topics, I'm going to skip over your section on Jesus because uh, coming up in about two weeks on on July 25th, I have an interview solely devoted to answering questions about Jesus. Um, I want to skip over to your chapter on on the church. Uh, there's some there's a question here I want to talk about because it's not often in an apologetic book, but again, this is kind of different because it's just what are questions that students ask. And this is definitely one that students ask, and, and it's a question of, hey, if, if church is boring, why do I have to go? Good question. And uh, by the way, for those that are pastors and in church leadership, this is a, kind of an imperative to try to not be boring. You know, uh, it's a sin to bore a kid. I really believe that. Um, do you know what? Like so much of life, Ryan, uh, we sometimes derive great benefit in doing things that we in the beginning really didn't want to do, you know, like we, we don't necessarily want to go to the gym, but the pain of, of doing a workout benefits us. Okay. God is sovereign. That means he's, he's in control and he's, he's in the world, but he's above the world. He interacts, uh, in this world, but yet he's beyond it. And sometimes church, we, we think, well, this is not where I'm at. This is not relevant to what I'm thinking about right now. And uh, the music is subpar and the, the sermon is and all that great. And then they asked me to serve on some committee and that's going to be just really burdensome. Why do I have to do this? Sometimes, all right, listen very carefully, folks. That thing that we wish to be out from under maybe the very vehicle God uses to take us where we want to be. Okay. We want to be, um, you know, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to overcome bad habits. We want to feel inner peace. Very often the thing that appears to be irrelevant or completely not where we're at is something that God in his wisdom uses to impact us. And so part of being a disciple is to be in a local body of believers. Now, uh, the church, quote unquote, or a local church, it takes on innumerable permutations. There's traditional church, there's house churches. 
Um, the main thing about church is that that each believer is in a body of fellowship where Jesus Christ is honored, where the Word of God is taught, service takes place, prayer, corporate fellowship, and and it's just um, we need the body because I, I honestly think this, Ryan. If we just decided to do discipleship our own way, so I'm like, okay, I'm a believer, but look, church is just not relevant to me. So I'm going to do it my way. Um, I really think we would get stagnant and we would not bear the fruits of the spirit. And so dull, boring church is like the fertilizer that grows the, the fruits in the garden. It might be stinky. It might be organic matter that looks messy. But yet, uh, the sweet fruit is grown from the richest fertilizer, and so we plug into church. I got to tell you, I, I'm sure you know Lee Strobel. You've probably interviewed Lee Strobel. Wrote the case. I haven't actually. I reached out to him, but I haven't had him on. Yeah. Well, um, I'll I'll email him, tell him to be on. <laughs> okay. He became a believer. Here's this guy. Law degree from Yale University, award-winning newspaper editor, uh, legal expert. He writes The Case for Christ, which sells millions of copies. And he was in a church in Illinois. And one time, this is like 20 years ago, and I asked him if he would um, come speak at a thing. And he said, uh, yeah, but I got to be back by Sunday because I'm helping out in the parking lot, um, setting out cones and directing traffic. I'm like, really? Lee Strobel? He was like, well, yeah, that's, they needed help, so I volunteered to do that. And I thought, isn't it great? Because among other things, folks, being in church will keep you humble. Um, my own home church in Greensboro, North Carolina, and, and I'm nobody. I just, I'm just some guy, but I do love the Lord. But anyway, I go to Bible school last night, and they needed somebody to empty the trash cans. You got a couple of hundred children in church. And there's going to be cups and plates and trash. So I spent three hours last night emptying trash cans. Um, and I'm not Alex, some author. Um, hey, uh, put trash bags in, in those trash cans. I'm like, yes, sir. I mean, we need that. Because can you imagine we'd be insufferable egotists if we didn't have service and fellowship and, yes, boring sermons to slow us down, keep us humble, and just say, Lord Jesus, I, I know I'll derive benefit from this, even if I don't know what the benefit is right this moment. Yeah. Now, what kind of advice, I mean, so you, you give some practical kind of advice to, to parents as well as to students uh, on kind of to get things out of church or to, to, to engage better with church. Um, and so I'm kind of curious on that, but as well as on kind of the flip side of, of what do you think is the church's responsibility of becoming not necessarily, I don't know, more entertaining is maybe not the best way to say it, but kind of making things a little bit more appealing to young people? Well, I, I think we need to do things with excellence. And, and I want to say this, folks, because I know that music, changes in music, boy, they, that can rub people the wrong way. And even doing content like apologetics. I mean, Ryan, you're on the, the, the cutting edge uh, by doing biblical worldview and apologetics. To the older Christians that might be watching, we've got to remember church is not about me. It is not about my preferences. And so... Uh, just last week, I was consulting with a church, and 
uh, this lady said to me, she said, I don't like this new music. And I said, okay, but you got to remember church is not about what I like or what you like. You've, you've got to constantly ask the question, is what we're doing reaching people? Uh, and, and by reaching people, okay, here should be the church's motto, that everyone around us of all ages hear the gospel in a clear, culturally relevant manner and have the chance to respond. Now, Ryan, let, let me give a little illustration. I was in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. I was up there to speak. And so um, I wanted to go to the Henry Ford Museum because I'm like a car nut. So I'm up near Ford and I want to see where they make the cars and all. So I'm driving like around some of the, the Ford automobile thing. And on this one corner, there was like a glass window and there's like some Mustangs and a Thunderbird and a Cobra, this showcase of some classics. But then the factory where they build the new models takes 20 minutes to drive past. It goes on and on and on. One little building where they showcase the classics, but all the energy, the raw material is spent creating the new cars. In the church, we've got that just flipped over. I mean, it's like the, and, and I love the church. I love the saints. But like everything goes to people that are already Christians. And then we'll just give like, 1% of the budget to youth and children's ministry. I would say the church is an entity that exists solely for the benefit of its non-members. I mean, we, we've got to, yes, we love the believers and we have worship, we have fellowship, but we've got to put the priority and our resources in reaching those that don't yet know Christ. And in here in America, I mean, goodness, millennials, Gen Z and younger, well more than 100 million strong demographic. Um, they've got to be the priority. They really do. And so things have to be uh, respectful, real, relational, relevant and done with excellence. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is a, an objection we're talking about that comes from students of, hey, this is boring. Why do I have to go? But one that I'm finding more common among adults uh, lately uh, with COVID is if church is online, why do I have to go? And so what about just uh, sitting at home, watching the service streamed on your TV? Uh, and, and what is the need to go to church in the culture now of everything being online and streamable? Well, there, there are contingencies, but I would say that staying home to watch online uh, that's a wonderful thing that technology can offer us but hebrews 10 25 and let's remember uh how we do church is is given to us in the scriptures you know there are first and second timothy and titus a lot about how to do church is in there but then in hebrews 10 25 it talks about assembling ourselves together and part of it is that we are to gather for corporate worship. And the Bible says that when two or three are gathered, uh, Christ is in the midst. And so, you know, let me say this. I know like if you're homesick or for some reason you can't go to ch church, yeah, you can watch it on a mobile device, you know, praise God. But um, people say to me, Ryan, they'll say, well, you know, I have to get up. Sunday's my only day to sleep in. I mean, these are Christians. Our, our walk with Christ and our participation in the church 
I, I really do think should cost us something. See, here's the deal. Salvation is a free gift, right? But Christian growth takes work. I mean, it really does. And to be a disciple, uh, apart from what I may or may not get, I got to get up, I got to drive across town, I got to dress, go to church, sit there. It's, it's a big encroachment on my day off. Yeah, it should be. Because I think getting nailed to a cross was probably not convenient either. But Jesus did it for us. The other thing, we should go to church because it is a witness to the watching world. You know, I mean, so I think it's important to participate in a local church, you know, whether we think we see an immediate benefit or not. Because like so many things in life, um, you know, life is not just all dessert. There's got to be some vegetables, too. And uh, I think spiritually, we shouldn't just go for the, the sweets, cotton candy and dessert. We need we need the Brussels sprouts and protein of some things that we think are boring or not beneficial because really they contribute to the building up of of us as a disciple and a Christ like follower. Yeah, I think that's so good. I think. There's just so much, uh, especially with young students, is uh, this, I think the entertainment culture that we live in, and if something is not entertaining, then it's not good. And it's often just kind of also retraining students to recognize that which is good may not necessarily be the most entertaining. And sometimes the best things for you are not going to entertain you, but are good. And then hopefully it's retraining and developing a taste for good things to where now you start desiring the goodness and you start appreciating and liking and enjoying the good thing because it's good, not just because it's entertaining. And so I think there's just so much that goes into that. And I think as well if with church, my wife and I were just talking about this the other day. We have a seventh month, seven month old, our first. And it's like, you know, what are the things that we're going to start doing at a very young age to help him try, like to do our best as parents, <laughs> to help him from a young age, develop a habit of doing things that are worth doing, not because they're necessarily fun, but because they're just good to do. And so trying to work through that. And then I looked at your book and saw this chapter on if church is boring, why should I go? I'm like, hey, that <laughs> that's it right there. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I know I quote a lot of Bible verses, but I mean, you know, um, I love Psalm 119, verse 93. It, it says, I will never forget your words, for through them I found life. Uh, but so, I, you know, I quote a lot of Bible verses. But here's the deal. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from your law or your word. James 1, verse 5 says, um, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives abundantly and does not withhold. Very often I'll be going to church and um, I mean, my wife and I, we have a lot of churches in our life. You know, we have um, where my parents used to go and m both my mom and dad are passed away, but we still have a relationship to that church. And then we have where my, my wife's parents go or, or went, used to go. Both my, my in-laws are in heaven too. So we've got a connection. So we, we've got a lot of churches in our life. And then by God's grace, I've, you know, spoken in like 2000 churches. Um, but very often I'll be going to church, Ryan, and I'll, I'll like, Lord, let me get something out of this today. I don't know what you want to teach me, but I'm sure something I need is is to be here today. So just like the Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from your word. I often pray, I'm like, Lord, open me up that I can behold whatever, whatever you need me to hear. And I would submit to, 
your your viewers and such that very often that you got to understand that unprepared Sunday school teacher is a child of God, Jesus loves, and they may give you the nugget that you need to hear. That that preacher who's not a Christian celebrity, uh, who's who's up there preaching something, you're sitting there thinking, what where is this going? And then he'll just drop this nugget into your heart. So we've got to remember that um, the Spirit of God speaks through his body. Um, when I was in grad school, I got to tell you this, um, I'm sure you've heard of like Rudolf Bultmann and, um, you know, the German theologians. Yeah. Okay. There was a um, professor that was a colleague of the Bultmanns named Etta Linnemann. Now, Etta Linnemann was a German liberal, but she became a, a passionate evangelical believer. And she came to Liberty University when I was in grad school and did a, a lectureship. And she talked about how in, you know, post-World War II Germany, um, you know, there, there was higher criticism and they, you know, deconstructed the Bible. And so she was invited to this storefront church and she thought, you know, oh, you know, why should I go there? Nobody there probably has a Ph.D. And uh, but she heard this man incredibly unpacking the scriptures. And ultimately she became a believer and she heard about Christ and she opened her heart to Christ. She went up to this this uh, lay preacher she said, I've never heard the word of God brought to life. Where did you go to school? Tübingen, Germany, you know, where did you get your degree? And he said, I don't have a degree. I'm a farmer. Uh, but it was uh, an unlettered, undegreed lay farmer that brought the scriptures to life. Why? Because the spirit of God was in that person. And ultimately, Etta Linneman, a bona fide academic, became an incredible, you know, representative of the gospel. Here's the thing. We need to go to church because if we're humble and willing, we're going to learn things and experience truth from directions that we didn't even expect it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have like three minutes left. I got to let you go. Um, maybe if I can squeeze in one more big question and figure out how we answer this in three minutes. But one thing I get in my classroom often and from students, especially those who don't believe, it's like, okay, I get you know the Bible and everything, but there's just so much in the Bible that's unbelievable. And they're talking about the mirac miracles uh, in Scripture. So how do we help students recognize uh, that the miracles in Scripture are not unbelievable things, but are true and, in fact, things that God did and that actually happened? Yeah, well, a, a miracle is an act of God, uh, and God will only do and will always do uh, that which is in harmony with his nature or that which is in harmony with his word. And God will only do things that are logically meaningful. Uh, God's not going to make a four-sided triangle or a married bachelor because that, that's, you know, uh, self-contradictory. So can God act? Of course. And, you know, it's been said that if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe any miracle in the Bible. Because the bigger miracle, you know, parting the Red Sea, making an axe head float, okay, that might sound impressive, but I would argue that creating the universe is even more impressive. And so if God exists, C.S. Lewis said this, if God exists, a miracle is not only possible, but to be expected. Yeah. So yes, you know, Ryan, uh, I believe that Jesus fed the 5,000. I believe that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. 
had no sin nature, and I believe in the resurrection. Because if an all-powerful God exists, certainly actions within this temporal world are possible. There's there's no logical reason that right. God couldn't act. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really does come down to a worldview difference of and, and a presupposition that we bring to Scripture of a naturalistic worldview that everything has a natural explanation. These things are or or just because something is un, is 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 difficult to believe or unbelievable because it's so incredible, you know, therefore it can't have happened. And so, you know, it often does come back to that question of like, well, does God exist? If he does, then, you know, this is easy. If he can create everything out of nothing. He can bring yeah. something back to back to life. Absolutely. Well, Alex, I know this, there's so much more to talk through and there's so much more that you're doing uh, that, that I wish we could have this time to discuss, but uh, we got to run. Uh, before I let you go, uh, I'd love for you just to take a moment and just kind of let people know maybe what's going on, conferences you have or anything like that, uh, that uh, uh, where to get more information. I have links uh, to your website and social media and everything down below on YouTube. Uh, but is there anything else you kind of want to share of, of what's coming up for you uh, for those who are listening? Oh, thanks, Ryan. Well, you know, we're starting these uh, apologetics clubs all across the country for middle school and high schoolers. They're called Viral Truth, the Viral Truth Clubs. And like any day now, ViralTruth.com is going to launch. But right now, people can just go to my website. But um, I've got a brochure and info. We've chartered like 50 clubs this year, and we provide talking points. So, um, you know, we've got radio and I'm speaking. But I, the thing that I'm most passionate about right now, Ryan, is helping these young people reach their friends through the clubs and uh, we'll provide all the info to help them do that viral truth. Wonderful. So good. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day uh, to join me. God bless you. You're, you're wonderful, man. I applaud what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I just want to thank you all so much for downloading the podcast and listening or for listening on radio. Next week, there will not be a show because I am traveling off to a summer camp here in Southern California. I'm leaving on Sunday, giving eight different sessions to a group of junior high and high school students over the course of next week. So there will be no show that third week of July. But stay tuned because the last week of July, July 25th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, Dr. Mikel Del Rosario, who recently received his PhD and did, did his dissertation on the divine claims of Jesus, is going to be coming on the show to answer questions about Jesus. Definitely a show that you're going to want to be looking forward to. And hopefully, if you're hearing this before then, send your questions in. You can send questions to questions at think-well.org. Uh, this way you can interact with my guests. And I would love for you to send in the questions that you have about Jesus or questions you've heard about Jesus that you want to help uh, receive some help answering so that I can have that content for that show on July 25th. The very next day, July 26th, is an interview with Dr. Sean McDowell on his new book, A Rebel's Manifesto, kind of what it looks like to live for God in this modern day. Now, after that, the very next day, July 27, I leave for another speaking event, this time in Florida, speaking to a high school retreat down there, giving, I believe, about, a, about five talks over the course of a few days. So I would love not only your prayers as I head off to two different speaking events over the next couple weeks, as well as the two upcoming shows I want you to let you know about and just encourage you to check out those shows. 
Now, if you enjoy this show, it would mean so much for you to head on over to where you listen, the iTunes or podcast player that you listen to. And if you could leave a review, that would mean a lot. I know that's one of the things about podcasts is it's just very hard to get the information shared to other people. There's not a lot of promotion there. And so when you leave a review and a rating, this definitely goes a really long way to allowing that platform to have more of a reason to promote this show and this content to other people who really could benefit from the conversation conversations that I have here, training Christians to think well and engage the culture with a gracious biblical worldview. And so if you could take a moment and do that for me, it doesn't take super long. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, I have recently sent out the first Think Well newsletter. I just kind of letting people know the process of, of how Think Well came to be, why it was started, and also gave a big long list of all the different events that uh, I was involved in over this summer. And so if you would like some more information on Think Well and have your email included in that email list to receive some updates, you can always send an email to info at think-well.org. I would love to add you to that list to send you that newsletter as well as upcoming newsletters and just kind of what is happening with this ministry. You know, there's just a lot of changes, a lot of new stuff with this new ministry happening. And I would love it if you just came alongside, not only with your prayer support, but just for me to be able to fill you in and continue providing this free content for you, hopefully training you to think well. And finally, if you did want to come alongside and support this ministry financially, there definitely are ways to do that. You know, there are just a lot of things that pop up out of nowhere at the very beginning of a ministry to get things off the ground and get things started. And so it really would, would mean a lot for you to come alongside and help support this either with a one-time gift or a monthly gift. There's different ways in which this can be done. Everything can be found on the website, think-well.org. But ultimately, it just means so much to me that you just want to listen. <laughs> I love doing this. I love recording this show. I love being able to interview guests and, and bring them to you so that you can learn from them. And it just is so much fun. I love doing this and it just means a lot that you would want to download this and listen to it. If you want us to go a step above and, and help share it, support it, rate it, that means a lot too. Uh, but honestly, just to have you here just means so much. And so I'd love to hear from you. If you want to send in that message, join the email list or send in your questions for upcoming interviews. Uh, but with that, I just want to thank you so much for downloading, for listening to the show today and continue as always to think well about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. Bye everybody. Just as you leave, won't hesitate to follow your love.